Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Robert Gordon for a discussion of his collection, Memphis Rent Party. In this episode, Robert tells Nate some of his favorite stories about the undersung musical legends of his hometown of Memphis, including chewing tobacco with rockabilly legend Charlie Feathers, soul legend James Carr's tragic tale of mental transubstantiation, the singer more frightening than Jerry Lee Lewis, the Lead Belly album that changed his life, and Jeff Buckley's final days. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we've got a very special guest. Author Robert Gordon is going to talk to us about his book, Memphis Rent Party. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Nate. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm very glad to have you. Um, I got to say, for an anthology of your writings, this was a very unified and powerful piece. I was not expecting it to have the emotional impact it did. So, My man, on. my man. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you picked, uh, I assume you had plenty of other pieces you could have picked. Um, and I noticed there's no Stax artist. You've got James Carr representing Memphis Soul, but you know, you're know you probably the author or the authority on Stax records, and yet no Stax artist. Why, why no Stax artist in this collection? Well, man, I had you know like a 500-page book on Stax. I kind of felt like I, I got my say done there and uh and i kind of folded into that book all of my all the research i'd done i didn't have a piece on stacks with the heft i wanted left i'd i'd, I'd use all that in the stacks book cool and it makes sense and this is a very powerful book to me the the sort of overwhelming image of it is the mississippi river and the flotsam and jetsam that that the floods you know the rich floods of music mm-hmm. success that have hit memphis and you talk about some of that you know you've got sam phillips in here and uh you know charlie Fe- feathers who's on the periphery of the rockabilly explosion and alex chilton who had a huge hit but it definitely seemed to me to sort of capture the lives of people who are in the music business when it's not pouring down fame and fortune <laughs> Yeah, my my formative experience in retrospect, I, I identify this as my formative experience. At the time, it was just what I was doing that afternoon, and that was hanging out with Furry Lewis, a uh, blues, a bottleneck blues player, um, who was in his late seventies in the nineteen seventies, and um, when I was in my teens, and 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 for me, the experience. Of, of being at his duplex on the rundown side of town in Memphis and visiting him numerous times, the impact for me was not just the musical experience, it was my first 
real physical experience with poverty. So, so Furry's lifestyle was so much different than the middle class life I was accustomed to in the suburbs. I realized that that the music has just been part of what I am interested in. It's how that how the lifestyle is expressed in the music. So I don't try to separate the culture or anything. It's all one big package to me. And and that really came home to me when I was compiling these pieces together. And I time and again saw that, you know, it was the character of the person I was going for, not the perfect description of their sound. Yeah, and that anecdote you tell about Furry Lewis uh, covering his glass so that spiders <laughs> won't get in it was just... Yeah, he would, you know, I was a kid and I would, and, and Furry's instructions from the first time I went were bring a pint of 10 high, which is a uh, kind of cheap rock gut um, bourbon. And when we would drink it at his house, he had shot glasses and he'd pour me one and he'd pour himself one. And I noticed that he kept this jelly jar lid on it. And and finally I asked him, you know, you see him do it a bunch of times. Furry, why are you keeping a, 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 a jar lid on your, on your drink? And, um, he said, uh, he talked about himself in the third person. Furry can't see very well, and he doesn't want a, a spider to bite him on the lip when he takes a sip. And it was just kind of blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, a spider in your drink, you know? And, and I began, it began to make me question everything I had taken for granted. At my house, we didn't have, you know, the pest control company took care of the spiders. My parents' eyesight was good enough and they had health care to get them glasses that were good enough that they'd be able to see if there was a, a you know, pest or something uh, in the way. Just everything. It's funny, man. You're a kid and you don't know this stuff is happening to you. And here we are like uh, 40 years later and I'm still trying to unravel every, everything that happened to me at 811 Mosby in Furry's, in Furry's house. Yeah, and, and your origin in the preface when you explain how you were introduced to furry at a rolling stones concert yeah. and 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 you know you quote bill wyman saying people ask us how they can get into this kind of music and we're like it's just across the river kid we had to cross the ocean and to me it's like you know the rolling stones brian jones whole mission when he founded the rolling stones was to hip people to the blues and and so at least for some people it worked yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean that was really most impressive when I was talking to Bill Wyman was like, that's what made me come to this realization that Memphis is a verb. People come to Memphis and they, they allow themselves the liberty and freedom to go have experiences they wouldn't have at home. They go to the other side of the tracks, you know, they dirty dance at a blues club. What I, one of the things I wanted to try to encourage people to do is do these things at home. You know, this, this, I mean, like kids may not ha have an encounter with a blues man who recorded for, you know, Victor in the 1920s, like I did, but that experience to me wasn't made any more or less impactful by, by Furry's recording history. You know, it was the fact that I had gone there and done that. I'd broken down I'd broken through walls that were trying to constrain my life. And, and I think Memphis as, a, as an artistic enterprise is about encouraging people to break down those walls. You know, that is when the, when the white producers went to the cotton fields in the 1920s and the Southern hotels and did recording of blues artists, when Sam Phillips opened his doors to African Americans and when stacks open their doors to blacks and whites working together, all of these things are about the same thing, which is breaking down social restrictions and opening minds. All of that sort of came from my understanding of Bill, you know, from Bill Wyman of the pursuit of African American music and the ease of it all across America. Yeah, and, and, and so that's something you bring up in your very first paragraph of the preface of this book. You say, Memphis has always been willfully ignorant of the transcendent artists walking its streets, willfully negligent of the African-American culture that produced them. I mean, 
Talk about that a little bit. Is that still true today? I can only talk about my perception of my Memphis, you know, and 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 I get really kind of flabbergasted by when when this whole trend of the past 15, 20 years where cities are encouraging their art. It's so different from the way it was when I was growing up, you know, um, civic enterprises were afraid of risk and art is a risk. So now that, you know, the cities are encouraging their musicians and creating, you know, committees to encourage artistic expression, you know, I go back to something that my mentor, Jim Dickinson, the great uh, musician and producer said to me, which was, this stuff happened by social rejects in dark rooms at night without the city's help. And that's the way this, this is supposed to happen. So the idea of, you know, cities encouraging this, it's sort of, I worry that there's an inherent concession. Oh, if we're going to get it, if we're going to take the city's involvement, then we have to, we can't be as brazen as we might want to be. It's a double-edged sword, I think. Yeah, I, I worry about that too, especially living here in Austin. I see that Exactly. Time and, and, and you don't want to see the city's music become a sort of a museum, you know, thing or something that greets people at the airport, but doesn't have any life to it. Well, but I want to I want to jump in. And but play it's a little nice, bit. too. It's got advantages. You know, that's why it's it's double edged. It's like how great to be paying a musician to play at the airport when people land. Hey, that's a gig that wasn't there before. And now, you know, it's money going from a corporation to a musician. Inherent good. So it, it, it plays both ways for sure for sure and so uh we're having you on the show and this is gonna be the first time we play music on the show this is a technical experiment um but <laughs> i, I want to play a little snippet of the song chevrolet by luther dickinson and charday thomas tell us a little bit about charday she's the granddaughter of otha turner is this correct or? that's correct um otha turner was sort of one of the last two uh to carry on the fife and drum tradition in the mississippi hill country and uh, and I started going to his picnics. He would slaughter a goat and sell goat barbecue sandwiches and and beer and and you'd hang out in his yard and it was just a mind blowing experience out in the country every August. I started going there in the eighties and and at some point Othar started bringing out this little five year old girl. I've got a photo of him and her when she's about five in my book, Memphis Rent Party. Um, and she could play the five. And it thrilled Othar, you know, like that he could, and as she aged, as she grew up and continued playing and got better at it, you could see his pleasure in knowing that his tradition was not gonna die. And so she has maintained it. And even more interestingly, as a kid, you know, of this day and age, she's brought other um, influences to it. She's kind of taken her granddad's music and let it morph with the modern world. One of her granddad's other big disciples was Luther Dickinson uh, of the North Mississippi All-Stars. And so it was natural that Luther and Charday would ultimately become players together because they shared the same influence. And, and this song, Chevrolet, is a recent recording um, of the two of them sort of taking up an Otha Turner classic song, Chevrolet, which really has its origins in Memphis many. And, um, and they kind of give it an updated uh, sound. Okay, we'll hear a few seconds of it. And so that's uh, Jim Dickinson's son, Luther, on the slide guitar. You wouldn't have heard that kind of blues slide guitar with Otha's fife and drums stuff. Is that right? That's right, except that Othar, yeah, Othar played it as a more traditional fife with uh, bass drum and snare drum. 
Um, but he also, Other Other could, you know, he wasn't a guitar player, but he could make his way around the instrument. But he inspired R.L. Boyce. Other, you know, knew uh, Fred McDowell. He knew the players all around the area. And so R. when R.L. Boyce was a drummer in for Other, Other sort of trained him, took him and pushed him along to play in guitar. And R.L. Boyce has become, you know, a real torchbearer of the Hill Country Sound. And the Hill Country Sound... This is a sound, especially the fife and drum stuff, this predates blues, correct? Yes, I think so. I mean, to me, you know, defining when something begins or ends is always impossible, but um, but but the fife and drum sound is taking a, you know, traditional sound. There's this big argument about whether blues began, you know, has African roots or whether it's an American music, I believe that it's a music that came together in America that's influenced by, you know, Anglo-Scots ballads and by African rhythms and whatnot. But um, you were asking about this particular song? Yeah, well, the fife and drum music in general. Yeah, and the hill country. And the, and the, hill, the, hill, the hill country sound is kind of, unlike the Mississippi Delta sound, which is kind of built around the slide guitar. The hill country sound is built around a drone. It's like a, it takes a pattern, often just a one one chord or two chord pattern and repeats it. Man, I saw R.L. Boyce play two days ago um, in Memphis and remarked to the friend I wound up standing next to, it's like, it's just amazing every time. It's this hypnotic thing. It pulls you in. It transports you. It takes the whole audience and like and turns it into a mind meld. It's just a really cool experience. And so, Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside are probably the best known uh, exemplars of that uh, hill country blues style, heavy yeah. on the drone. And and you've got an article in there about uh, your discovery of Junior Kimbrough or your personal discovery of him going down yeah. to Mississippi to see that. And and I had not realized how involved you had been. Uh, you know, I knew R.L. Burnside by way of the John Spencer Blues explosion in the in the nineties, mm-hmm. the ass pocket full of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't realize you played quite a role in bringing that stuff to the attention of the world. I think maybe um, you know it was just what was going on around here, and um, that's sort of been the thing I do is shine a light in the shadows around the Memphis, Mississippi area. So into the dark places in the Memphis, Mississippi area. So, so I got in, you know, I had this, I just sort of bumped into Junior Kimbrough in Holly Springs one Saturday when he invited me and my friends back for his Sunday house party at his home. And um, by that point, I'd, he had put out 45s on the local high water label. So I knew who he was and I'd seen him at festivals. But, but, you know, it's one thing to be standing in an audience and looking up at a stage at a performer. And it's another experience completely when that performer is in their own living room with all the furniture taken out and is selling beer out of the kitchen and, you know, pure grain alcohol punch and is performing in their own home and you're standing in the home with them dancing. I mean, it was just like taking the listening experience and having it in a pressure cooker. So I was really, you know, I was like, wow, I left, you know, blown away and went back to it as often as I could. And I'll admit it, man, I took it for granted. Any Sunday I wanted, I could go hear Junior Kimbrough. And, you know, it's the same, um, I do it now, like the uh, Fife and Drum Picnic. It's terrible to take this stuff for granted. It's also an incredibly, an incredible luxury. But uh, yeah, this stuff's all around and it's, it, it, it still thrives. Cool. And we'll go ahead and hear a little bit of Junior Kimbrough. The song is All Night Long and it's part of the uh, Memphis Rent Party collection that you put together to go with the book. So that was Junior Kimbrough uh, doing All Night Long. The, and is that, 
Mississippi Hill Blues Sound still going? I know Junior and Arl Burnside have passed away. Oh, yeah. Um, and actually, yeah, it's still going strong and, and, and quite a bit through their legacies. Um, Cedric Burnside, is uh, he plays often um, Dwayne Burnside, Gary Burnside, and then several of Junior's children and grandchildren. Um, David Moore, I forget their names. They're they're not Kimbro, um, but yeah. So so those guys, you know, the the Fat Possum record label does a lot to preserve it and keep it going too. It's like people like R.L. Boyce and Luther Dickinson and the North Mississippi All Stars. You know, I mean, they've taken that sound really to uh, the world in a way. Before we wrap up sort of the blues section of this book, which is sort of a way I'm organizing it in my head. Okay. I wanted, I wanted <laughs> one, one article I found fascinating in here was uh, your piece about Robert Johnson, who's not a Memphis performer, but a Mississippi Delta performer. But uh, you tell the story of trying to track down who was getting the money from the enormously successful CD collection of right. Robert Johnson songs that came, came out in the nineties. Uh, and that's just a amazing tale of, chicanery by yeah. people that you know i guess were legitimately enthusiastic blues collectors but managed to insert themselves in the process between you know between the johnson family and columbia records how did that happen greed simple greed you know that piece i think came out in 1991 so i worked on it in 1991 um it was a cover story in the la weekly that uh came somewhat on the heels of the box set which became a gold you know selling record and 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 everybody was writing about the music and the faustian myth and all that but you know where was the money i wanted to follow the money and and my friend peter Gronick had brought that story idea to me um and i think i was a little too young and, and naive to realize how toxic that story had the potential of being I know in the final, that, that was the first piece I did where they said, okay, we need to give this now. Now we need to turn it over to the lawyers for the legal read. And I was like, oh, okay, that's serious. Um, be, because there'd been so many lawsuits and threats of lawsuits all around it. And I was indeed threatened with a, a lawsuit, though no action was ever taken. But I, yeah, I tried to find out how the Johnson family had wound up never getting any of the money. That was kind of... As I got further into it, that was what I wanted to understand. And it's a story about two white researchers, each of whom has very different goals and considerations. And their their class, it's like one wants to find out all the facts, but he wants them for himself and he wants to control the story. And the other wants to wants all the money and is seeking the facts as a way to for personal capital gain and it was and those two guys mac mccormick and steve levere their stories became entwined in a really kind of uh almost cinematic way and and they're both uh they've they're both deceased now did mac mccormick he, he always claimed that he had solved the mystery of who murdered robert johnson did that information ever come to light not yet i've talked to one group that has been trying to the, um, Mac McCormick's family is, 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 as I understand it, basically trying to sell his estate, his research, which is good. At least they're not throwing it away. And, um, and so one record company was trying to get, trying to purchase it all, in which, which would come with Mac's manuscript, which supposedly would finally reveal, you know, all of Mac's information. Mac said it, his book was done back in the 80s and he was just waiting for the perpetrator to die or something like that. You know, who knows? At this point, it's all been, you know, myth, legend, chicanery. The, the facts are very unclear in, in all that at this point in time still. All right, well, I'll cross my fingers and hope that the <laughs> information yeah, comes too. to light and can be verified. But now I want to turn to the, to the rockabilly side of things. Rockabilly probably... I mean, you know, in the 20s, you had the Memphis Jug Band and others that Memphis was making a huge impact uh, on W.C. Handy, of course, uh, the Memphis Blues uh, on American music. But Rockabilly and Elvis Presley and Sam Phillips is one of the big contributions that Memphis has made to mainstream music. And this article uh, 
about Sam Phillips on David Letterman. Talk about that a little bit. Well, Sam Phillips is sort of the the epitome of Memphis, period. He's the epitome of the Memphis ideal, the idea of going of, of going somewhere where you're where society is telling you you're not supposed to go. You know, Sam um, used to hang out outside a, an African American church in Alabama because the way that that congregation sang and prayed affected him so much more than the way his own congregation did. So, um, and, and when Sam opened the doors at Sun Records, his intention was to give people like B.B. King and Ike Turner and Phineas Newborn Jr., you know, a place to do their work, not, not to do work for a white producer, but a place to come and express themselves. So Sam makes an appearance on David Letterman in the, I guess that was the 90s. I can't remember the 80s. And, uh, and the piece, the appearance just really kind of blew me away because Sam broke so many rules of decorum, TV decorum. And then and trying to understand it, it's actually my wife who gave me the great insight there on that piece. We were talking about it. And, and she's the one who helped me see, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> what Sam Phillips did is he just went on national TV and produced David Letterman. You know, he got David uncomfortable. I think a, a record producer, ha- the, their job is to go in and liberate the artist's spirit, not get them to, you know, play perfectly but instead to play in their most free and inspired. And that means kind of getting them off their game, making them slightly uncomfortable uh, so that they've got to work to be themselves. And Sam did that with David Letterman in an interview. And you watch it and it's just hilarious. You know, when you when you can figure out, at first when you watch it, you just think, wow, Sam Phillips, he's drunk. Boy, what an embarrassment. But the more you watch it, you realize, wow, Sam is in total control and, and David Letterman is in a battle to keep his position the whole time. And, it, and it's the best David Letterman that you'll ever see. So that's what that piece is about, kind of a play-by-play of how Sam um, produces a hit on David Letterman. Yeah, and that, I think that was from 1986. And, and I remember that at the time, and that was a video clip that we passed around back in the days when you trade tapes at VHS. Yeah. And and for me, looking back at David Letterman's work, Sam Phillips, Andy Kaufman, and Harvey Pekar, and a few other eccentrics, the people that would break the wall and, and throw Dave off his game, those are the magical moments of the David Letterman show. And one one thing that you, I think it's a Jim Dickinson quote, but that, that you bring out that I think captures the essence of Sam Phillips's contribution is that, you know, Dickinson's philosophy as a producer was, if they can do it again, the producer didn't do his job. Like the, the producer's job is to capture that moment. It can't be repeated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And to create, exactly, to, to create the environment where the artist can go somewhere that they don't think they can go. Yeah. And, and you know, reading Goralnik's book on, on Sam Phillips and his books on Elvis, it's pretty clear that Sam, you know, by running into the studio when Elvis is goofing around on That's All Right, Mom, Mama, that's exactly what he did with Elvis. Elvis wanted to be a Perry Como clone like you say yeah uh and sam captured this other thing in elvis that elvis always i think all the way to the end viewed as a bit of a joke a a lark you know this white kid doing this blues music but sam captured it for real and showed that you know and when you record it and you hear it even elvis had to admit it had the power and had the magic and that's that's i think something that you're uh capturing in this book uh, about the magic of memphis and jim dickinson uh, you describe him as your mentor, and he's very much central. He's somebody who was uh, a little bit younger than than Sam Phillips, but older than you. Mm-hmm. And 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 a friend of his, you know, he's towards the end of his life, bemoaning, wasted his time, or <clears throat> didn't make the most of his life. And his and his friend says, "No, you were there at the end of something, and you were smart enough to to kind of realize what was going on." Exactly. And and so tell us about Jim Dickinson and and his contribution, what he taught you about Memphis music. Well, that anecdote you've just shared where, where, where Jim says, uh, Jim's expressing some bitterness sort of 
at about the three quarter point or two third point of his career. And his friend says, you know, you were on the you 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 were on the tail of something really great and you got to experience it and understand most of it, meaning Jim's interactions with the older original blues men and women. Um, and, and it changed Jim in that moment. When the guy said it, it changed Jim. And that always hung with me. That bitterness Jim was referring to was sort of epitomized by Charlie Feathers. Um, exactly. A Memphis rockabilly artist, a Sun artist, who had never gotten the the hits he thought he should have had. And frankly, whose records stand up to history. You know, it's like, man, that's a great voice. Those are great re recordings. They should be better known. But so that moment of Jim talking about Charlie Feathers and about himself, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm approaching 60 now. When I was and about in my mid-50s, I started, you know, finding myself grousing a little bit about this and that and pissed off about the way, you know, things were going. And that story about Jim that Jim had told me just flashed in my head. And, and I like to think that I... Um, took the same lesson that Jim took, uh, even, even though I wasn't there for the lessons Jim's telling affected me. Um, because I've, you know, through people like Dickinson, like Furry Lewis and Mose Vincent, who I, I write about, and Alex Chilton and, you know, Junior, the, the people in, in this book, they shared with me life experiences that were rare and treasured and culturally important in America and which I've tried to share with others. And frankly, which I got a feeling are not really going to have their impact until, you know, long after I'm gone. The idea that, you know, that these sort of nooks and crannies in the American experience w have been preserved will be appreciated more in the future than it is now. And, and that's something I took from Jim's band, Mudboy in the neutrons these guys um made the greatest i mean you know with all due respect to the rolling stones the rolling stones learned about blues from you know vinyl records jim and mudboy and the neutrons his band in memphis they learned about it from the blues men and and so they got this firsthand experience that makes their music that much deeper but but jim had also already had some tastes of fame. Sid Selvage had had some tastes of public life. And the two of them were like, no, thanks. You know, I'd rather live my life than have to be, than have to hide in my life like the Rolling Stones do, you know? You can't go out in public and all that stuff. So, so Mud Boy, to me, has always been about the horizon. And art, you know, life is short, but art is long. These things are about the, about preserving about aiming high, you know, about making people think about things they might not have thought of before and changing how they think in the future. And since you uh, bushwhacked my Charlie Feather segue, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to <laughs> shift things up a little bit. And, and because that last quote you gave me is so much like a quote that uh, you ended your Lead Belly piece on. And he it was not a Memphis artist. This is somebody you picked up on record. Yeah. Um, because you, I, that, that, that little piece, sorry to interrupt you, but that piece about Lead Belly, I was just trying to capture the wholeness of the experience of being a music fan and writer. And that piece is about buying records, you know, and how I stumbled upon a Lead Belly because of the album cover and the experiences that it opened me up to just by taking that chance, that yeah, dollar chance. And the last sentence in the article was, uh, and and it's and it's a, an article about finding an album that was recorded at a party of Lead Belly singing a cappella to some friends and patrons in New York, mm -hmm. and 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 something is released in him. He's free to express himself in a way he wasn't in the studio. But uh, but the last quote there is, "The living was hard, but the art is fun." <laughs> and and that uh, to me really sums up this book. I mean, you know, you talk about a lot of sad stories, a lot of hard lives, uh, but the art lives on. And the art, you know, you listen to this album, and it's just this shambolic 
a noisy mess, but damn, it's funky <laughs> and fun. Hey, can uh, I coach you on that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, it's it sounds, you know, there's Alex Jilton on it, obviously, but it really reminded me of some of the outtakes from Blake Star's third album and and uh, some of the stuff from the, you know, um, the great quartet with Elvis and Johnny Cash, the Million Dollar Quartet with Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, and we do have Charlie Feathers on there. I want to play this Charlie Feathers uh, doing "Defrost Your Heart." You grew cold and acted smart. Won't you please defrost your heart? Fill this trays with the love, sweet and warm. Melt the ice. So that was Charlie Feathers doing Defrost Your Heart. Robert, why did you pick a country song? I mean, it's obvious Charlie's a great country singer, but he's most known for his just off-the-chain rockabilly. Why did you go with the countryside of Charlie Feathers rather than a rockabilly take? It was all about the voice for me, for Charlie. I mean, Charlie can do anything. Charlie, Charlie can sound like the Blue Jays in the trees. He can sound like... Um, a Hawaiian, you know, grass skirt. I mean, he just, he's all over the place. And, uh, and I just think that his performance in Defrost Your Heart, the way he shifts his voice, you know, and the way that, and the whole tonal um, achievements throughout it, I just was blown away. And I think that's a great, it, that is a great introduction to Charlie. And it takes you, from there, you can get into the more upbeat rockabilly and and into the, you know, some of the country ballads he does. You know, Charlie will take you. You can you can saddle up with Charlie. For sure. And all the rockabilly heads I know, I mean, they swear by Charlie Feathers as possibly the number one all-time king of rockabilly. And, and it's... <laughs> Uh, uh, it is just sort of amazing how he never never clicked commercially and didn't really click with Sam Phillips. wasn't one of the Sun Records, you know, featured artists. And you kind of capture that the fact that Charlie always wondered about that. Why did why didn't it happen for me? I wrote that Charlie Feathers article because he had a record coming out on a major label, Electra Records. So like you know, Charlie Feathers was in the phone book. Shelby Foote was in the phone book. Um, Furry Lewis, if you knew that his first name was Walter, he was in the phone book. You know, um, in Memphis, you could just call these people up. So what I did that was different was I went across town and sat under the tree in Charlie's front yard and shot the breeze with him for the afternoon. Uh, anyone could have done it, you know, but I did it. And that's what this book is. It's sort of capturing those those times under that tree with charlie i got you know as beautiful as his voice is his life has been that hard he was basically functionally functionally illiterate which um i think uh engendered a certain attitude of distrust in him which probably uh is the reason he never got the success he deserved because he wasn't comfortable ceding, you know, power and authority to others, because whenever he had done that, he'd been screwed, you know, by the mechanic, by the TV repair guy, whoever could read had more power than him. And I think it made him, a, you know, the belligerence that that engendered probably made him harder to deal with than than others. Yeah. And, and there's two directions I want to go from there. And the first one is belligerence. Uh, you interview both Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> Jerry McGill. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank you. Uh, uh, and and you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, obviously world famous. Jerry McGill, not famous at all, but incredibly talented. Also a felon. And and you and you tell the story about how you ended up giving Jerry McGill your home address. And I just want to ask, which guy was scarier, Jerry Lee Lewis or Jerry McGill? Jerry McGill, without a doubt. Jerry McGill. Hands down, no question. Jerry Lee is a is a tough coot, man, and and no no scene in that long Jerry Lee piece captures that better than than when I went was on the bus 
the bathroom on the bus was just before his suite at the back. And, you know, I was thinking maybe I'll go talk to Jerry Lee. We were coming back from a gig at the Ryman from Nashville to Memphis. It was the wee hours of the morning, you know, and he'd been watching TV on the bus. And I just thought, I thought I have to pee and I'll go back there and maybe I'll talk to him. And I looked Jerry Lee in the eye as I was approaching and his glare told me everything, you know, do not come in here, you know, do not approach me, do not talk to me, total disdain um, and, and, you know, fury. But McGill, he carried sawed off shotguns with him. He carried knives. He was, you know, even though that would have put him back in jail automatically because he was a felon and he had, I mean, his kind of danger was something new to me and something I hadn't previously considered when I got in deep with him because I thought, oh man, he's 70, he's been in jail, you know, he's been in prison several times, he's got to be tamed. And man, that guy was every bit as, as dangerous and malicious as he no doubt was when he made his son record in 1959. Well, thanks for getting that close to the fire for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can you can share the experience. We made a you know the documentary I made about McGill. It's called Very Extremely Dangerous, um, and it is it will take you right close as close to the fire as you want to get. I assure you. And he's a great musician. There's a track on the Memphis Rent Party LP uh, from him back with Neutrons and backed by Alex Chilton. I mean, everybody came out for McGill. They all wanted to help the bank robber. <laughs> and and so the second direction I wanted to go with that was was Alex Chilton. And, and you know, you talk about Charlie Feathers and how he was wary of people because he was illiterate. Alex Chilton was somebody who had a number one hit when he was 16 years old and really mm -hmm. never saw any of the money and then puts together this Memphis supergroup, Big Star with Chris Bell, and, and you know, puts together this beautiful, should have been a massive hit, number one record that's the name of it the album mm -hmm. the first album number one record and then spends the rest of his career sort of keeping success at bay when when big star didn't happen you know chilton sort of stiffs arms stiff arms the biz and mm -hmm. and just confounds expectations all the way and i want to play uh, a song uh, this will be our last selection i want to play the song that you picked um johnny too bad from alex yeah. chilton. and tell us a little bit about this track this track is Alex Chilton circa, I think, 1978 or 9, 80, maybe not later than that, in a Memphis club. This is it in, you know, when punk rock was still vital and, and powerful. He's um, at a Memphis club, and he liked playing with this young punk band named The Randy Band, who were kind of like the premier local punk rock band in Memphis with who had a great pop songwriter and really good musicians. And, you know, in another day and age, they would have really gone somewhere. Uh, so Alex would commonly show up at their gigs and just start playing songs. And they'd never played this song together before. Um, but they, as, and you can kind of tell, uh, but it's also great. You know, I think I'm not interested in a song that sounds perfect because it's got no edge to it. You know, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And a song like this captures the edge. It captures the attempt of trying to come together. It, it, it captures the sense of not trying to fall apart. And I also just love the, the vocal. I love, I mean, Alex Chilton got to a point where he really didn't try anymore, I think. He, he just would go out there Alex Chilton at his average was, you know, well above most people trying hard. And so he was perfectly content to go out there and do his average. But here you still hear him at a time when he loved music and loved performing and loved what he was doing, even if, you know, everybody's trying to follow along with him. And this is uh, Alex Chilton and Johnny Too Bad. Johnny, you're too bad. Johnny, you're too bad Walking down the road With the ratchet in your waist 
Johnny, you're too bad. Johnny, you're too bad. You're just a robbing and a shooting and a burning and a looting. You're too bad. You're just a robbing and a shooting and a burning and a looting. You're too bad. And that was Alex Chiltern uh, covering Jimmy Cliff's uh, Johnny Too Bad. The song, the sound, classic soundtrack album, "The Harder They Come," and like you said, Alex Chilton, this is when he's still trying, and it's got very much that heartbroken quality in his voice that he captured on the Big Star's third or Sister Lovers album. That was my introduction to Alex Chilton. I, I mean, yeah. obviously, I'd heard the letter on the radio, but that that third album, the first Big Star thing, I was able to get my hands on after years of searching for Big Star because you just couldn't find the records in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and when so many people were talking about him and everything. And and uh, in the book, you've got a picture there of Alex Chilton being backed up by the replacements, Paul Westerberg. And, mm-hmm. and, and I want to use that as a segue into some of the people that you cover in the book that are not really Memphians, um, mm-hmm. like Cat Power, and Towns Van Zant, and of course Jeff Buckley, who wasn't from Memphis, but he died in Memphis, and mm-hmm. and, and you knew Jeff Buckley, and and you had some pretty close experiences with him. I want tell us about that a little bit. That's a particularly sad one, you know, uh, tragic. I I met Jeff because he came to Memphis. All three of those people came to Memphis to record, um, which is how they're included in the book. Towns actually came here to record because me and some other bands from here had been on a European tour with him and we'd all had so much fun. He was like, I gotta go down there and record with y'all. But, but Jeff came to easily recording and me and Doug easily and Davis McCain, those two guys ran that studio. Um, we were always friendly and, uh, several pieces, the James Carr piece came about because James Carr was going to easily to record my introduction to Jeff had been hearing him do a cover of a song from Big Star Third. I think he did Kangaroo. And um, and I was like, oh, who's this, you know, who's this voice? And his voice was so good. And then that that uh, Mojo Pin, I think was the first record, whatever it's called, that was really cool. And uh, and he comes here and he was liking the experience and I was hanging out at the studio and he mentioned he was thinking of trying to move here and I lived on a cool little block in Midtown there was a house for rent and I introduced him to that and he wound up you know moving on to that block and so we my wife and I would have him over for dinner or he and I would hang out just because basically we were neighbors at the same time I was writing my I think I was writing my Muddy Waters biography and he was working on his album so it wasn't like you know, we were palling around together all the time. We both needed our privacy, but, um, you know, he, <laughs> one time we had him over for dinner and I opened the door. I think this is in that story in the book. I opened the door and Jeff is at the door in a like three piece green velour suit with a hat. I was like, Oh, check out <laughs> Mr. Clean, you know, and I bring him in the kitchen and, um, you know, my wife is kind of, impressed with uh, he just looked so cool we had a blast we, we we wound up sitting in the backyard it was a really weird night we got you know we drank quite a lot of wine we sat in the backyard under the trees i don't know man it it was really fun i had a lot of different encounters with with um jeff and uh and when i got the call from when he died before we knew he died i first got a call from mojo magazine who i wrote for and then they called and said, the editor called and goes, we have a report on the wire that Jeff Buckley's dead. And I was like, man, leave that guy alone. You know, and I really kind of blew them off. And about half an hour later, I looked out front of my door and I saw four guys walking down the street with their hands in their back pocket. And they were kind of staring at the street. They were hunched. And I immediately knew, though I'd never met any of them, I was like, oh, my God. That's Jeff's band, and Jeff is dead. And I just, I mean, I'm getting chills now thinking about it. It was just horrible. I don't know, man. His record company people, they came and were staying at the house. We would bring food up there. It was just a a really bad experience. One last thing about that. On the fifth day, his mom, who'd been there for several days, we all kind of came to terms at that point that he was dead. And his mom had a kind of tribute to him at the house. And um, 
I just heard it in a bar the other night. One of the so, so she was playing songs that were particular to him, and one of the ones I recall was John Lennon's "Jealous Guy." And every time I hear that song, I think about us standing up there on Rembrandt Street making a toast to Jeff. And thanks for sharing that. I know that's not easy. Uh, he was a remarkable talent, and you know. I envy you having gotten to know him, and, and at the end of your book, you have kind of an apology for your career choice of being a music writer, and, and uh, <laughs> you say, I'm often lauded for having followed my passion in life, especially by people who chose routes with more security. They project a lot of what they think they missed under my lifestyle, unconstrained, romantic, stimulating. They don't consider what it's like raising a family with no guarantee of work when this article, this book, this film is completed. When someone says I admire you, I take that to mean I wouldn't do what you do. The ladder that workers climb has regulated mandated steps. Mine has rickety rungs and the poles are grease. The success is unexpected and scarce, often invite antagonism. Um, and that, you know, as somebody who's uh, just a hobbyist and a music fan, that that really hit home. I mean, it's like, you know, you always <laughs> look over the, the, the over the fence and the grass is greener and you point out, well, the grass over here has fire ants and dog shit too. <laughs> yeah, shards of glass, yeah. But, you know, I just wanted to thank you for your work. I mean, it's it's oh. been a lot. I've learned so much about, you know, Muddy Waters and Stax Records and, and uh, you know, all the various characters of the Memphis Rip Party. And I really, I mean, I have another two hours worth of questions just on this book. Um, <laughs> But it's it's a great book, and thanks so much for being on the show. And I hope we can have you back on again to talk about some of the other work. Thanks, Nathan. I enjoyed your uh, questions and pursuits and your observations on my book. I, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, that that bit at the end of Memphis Red Party, I'm glad to hear it struck home. I, I'm raised in a culture where, you know, success is so often uh, gauged by how much money you've got how you know how successful were you well, it was great we you know we we won a hundred bucks um this book was very helpful to me in sort of recalculating the rewards of my life and looking at the jewels i collected and can share that can't buy me you know a chicken at the supermarket but they can help a uh culture and art and great dead art continued to live. And I think it, I think it can. At least you pass this stuff on to me, and, and hopefully we can pass it on to some other people and, and keep sharing the wealth. So uh, that's Robert Gar Gordon, author of Memphis Rip Party. Thanks for listening. Next week, Nate will be back with author Elijah Wald to discuss the real story of Robert Johnston, the blues legend, in its proper context. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This Rent Party by Robert Gordon is available from Bloomsbury Publishing and can also be found wherever fine books are sold. <laughs>